good morning. We've been following the life of Christ very closely, and today the sermon is on the trials of Jesus. As a practicing lawyer, I find these trials fascinating from a legal perspective. It's a story of how not to go about a trial. Do you know what a plot twist in a book is? It is when a story takes an unexpected turn. If you're watching a movie with a plot twist, you might gasp and think, I never saw that coming. The night Jesus was arrested, his disciples might have uh, muttered similar words. Jesus being arrested by a band of armed soldiers was not the way the disciples thought things would happen. Until Jesus was arrested, the disciples thought things were going to go their way. After all, just a few days before, all of the people in Jerusalem were welcoming Jesus and shouting praises to him. They, shouted, they yelled out, Hosanna, save us now. But now things had taken a horrible turn. It seemed that the events of the evening had spun out of control. But in fact, things were not out of God's control. These events were no surprise to God. It, this was the very reason Jesus had come to earth. Many times we're surprised by events that take place in our lives. But, but don't imagine that just because you didn't see it coming, that God didn't either. God knows all things, and he is in control. We're reminded of that in Isaiah 46.10. Take control knowing that there are no surprises for God. A trial is supposed to be held in order to find the truth. Indeed, uh, judge friends that I have tell me that they would prefer to set ten guilty men free rather than wrongly convict one innocent person. The, the trial of Jesus was not about finding the truth. It was about finding a way to get rid of Jesus. It was uh, about uh, yielding to the calls uh, for uh, Jesus uh, to be convicted. Today, as we think about all of the trials that Jesus went through, consider the awesomes of our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Thank you. Early in the morning, Jesus was taken from Caiaphas' house to the governor's palace. The Jewish authorities did not go inside the palace, for they wanted to keep themselves ritually clean in order to be able to eat the Passover meal. So Pilate went outside to them and asked, What do you accuse this man of? We would not have brought him to you if he had not committed a crime. Then you yourselves take him and try him according to your own law. We are not allowed to put anyone to death. This happened in order to make come true what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he would die. Pilate went back into the palace and called Jesus.
Are you the king of the Jews? Does this question come from you? Or have others told you about me? Do you think I'm a Jew? It was your own people and the chief priests who handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom belonged to this world, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish authorities. No. My kingdom does not belong here. Are you a king, then? You say that I am a king. I was born and came into the world for this one purpose. To speak about the truth. Whoever belongs to the truth listens to me. And what is truth? Then Pilate went back outside to the people and said to them, I cannot find any reason to condemn him, but... According to the custom you have, I always set free a prisoner for you during the Passover. Do you want me to set free for you? The king of the Jews? They answered him with a shout. I always wanted to go on. I want to keep listening to that. It's like, now you have to listen to me. Well, good morning. And um, should you need extra coffee, it's available this morning. Um, I got a little uh, email this morning from a friend who sent me a picture, and it's a picture of a brown bear coming out of hibernation, and uh, his eyes are still very much closed, but the caption is, I'm up. If you're expecting bright-eyed and wishy-tailed, go catch a squirrel. (laughs) So he's not quite ready either. Maybe we'll have to have a seventh inning stretch here this morning to keep awake. What a great passage in front of us this morning. Uh, I invite you to uh, John chapter 18, and this is our third message from this chapter this week. Uh, As we consider the trials that Jesus went through just before being sentenced to death. I believe there's an insert in your Sunday news this morning that may be helpful for us as well. But let me ask you, have you taken the time to carefully read the accounts surrounding the trials that were thrust upon our Lord. And, and, you know, it might be kind of easy to get lost in the detail of all the accounts or not be clear about how these uh, court appearances all flow together. I love the story uh, of the tourist who stood in front of the Mona Lisa at a famous museum in Paris. And after examining the painting for a long time, he was heard to remark, I don't see anything so great about that. The nearby guard was reported to reply, Sir, that painting is not on trial. Your taste is. Wow. 
That painting is not on trial, your taste is. From a guard who is not paid for his comments, but paid for his protection. As I reread the story uh, of the many times that Jesus was hauled before a Jewish court or a Roman court, probably six different appearances, I wonder who really was on trial through all of this. My guess is that it really wasn't Jesus after all. Everybody else except Jesus was on trial. The Jewish government, the Roman government, the leaders, the people, and all of us. I think you know there are really two great struggles taking place in these accounts of the trials. There is the physical struggle. There is the struggle between Jesus and Pilate and Caiaphas and Annas and, and the Sanhedrin. And that's one struggle. But the deeper struggle is between principalities and powers. Principalities and powers. All the forces come together here as God and Satan act out this great drama on this puny stage called earth. Ultimately, God wins the battle through the resurrection. But God, in amazing ways, and I want you to see this this morning, God, in amazing ways, takes Satan's every evil ploy and weaves it into a scenario for his own purposes. The greatness of God is that he can use even evil to accomplish his purposes. All the pieces of the puzzle come together to form his great purpose. I marveled, but in agreement with the gentleman who said, I have been blessed as much by my enemies as I have by my friends. I've been blessed extravagantly through loyal friends, but some of the best things in my life have happened because of people who did not wish me well and who were nevertheless God's instruments. Do you hear that? And don't you know how often that is true? When you get back a little ways and you can see the picture, you can see all the pieces coming together and how they're forming. And you know God is in the midst of all of that. And when you and I become part of God's purpose, He can take all the pain and all the failure and, and all of the hurt of life and He can weave it into His master design for our lives. I don't, I don't really know much else that brings greater encouragement to my heart that, than that, that God takes all the pieces, even the very tough ones, and he sees how all the pieces to the puzzle fit. And he builds it for us. He builds it for us. And in the end, it looks very beautiful what God has done in your life. So this is an amazing account here of God himself on trial. And in reading it, we, we are on trial as well. Jesus is saying here that there is nothing we can do to make him stop loving us. Not even six unfair trials. And not even all the scourging that Jesus went through. Not, not even all the, 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 the ways that they humiliated him. And 
not even the cross. God was weaving together a beautiful tapestry of love and the pattern includes suffering and pain. And he takes all the pieces that were dealt to him and he turns them into an amazing portrait of his love and his grace to all humanity. It touches my heart just to think of that. So Jesus endured probably about six trials uh, before he was wrongfully convicted. It's rather bizarre how the trials broke the rules, just like Bob was saying this morning. It broke the rules of what was fair, what was right. Uh, Court procedures were grossly violated. They were so anxious to take Jesus off the scene, they, they broke their own legal rules. And uh, let me give you the real fast version. And then I'll slow down and I'll invite you to consider what the trials should mean to us or what they do mean to us. Uh, so th- this is kind of the six trials very quickly. So first they take Jesus to a guy named Annas, who was a religious leader. Annas gives him a little trial, then he sends him to a guy named Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time. Caiaphas does a little trial, and he sends him to the religious supreme court, which is called the Sanhedrin. They give him a little trial, then they popped him off to Pilate, who was the Roman governor in Jerusalem. Pilate gives him a little trial and decides that there's nothing to accuse him of and he wants to pass the buck and he sends him to a guy named King Herod of Judea. Herod looks at him, plays for him for a little with him for a little while, finally says, I don't want him. And he sends him back to Pilate and Pilate has another trial. They go through about six different trials in about eight hours. Now, I thought court proceedings and court appearances dragged on for months, maybe even years, before you finally get the case settled. It's appealed, it's held over, it's held over, it's held over. That's how it works in our country. This one was settled quickly. And some of those trials were in the wee hours of the morning. Come on. What kind of justice is that? And what did they come up with to accuse him of? Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Zero. So let me just focus in on the three trials that we see in John 18. And that will give us a wonderful perspective of what God is revealing to us through the trials. First one is, the trial called by Annas shows us strength under pressure. John 18, verse 13. First they took him to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at that time. And now I'll invite you to move down to verse 19. It says, inside the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what he'd been teaching them. Jesus replied, everyone knows what I, what I teach. I have preached regularly in the synagogues and the temple where the people gather. I have not spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me. They know what I said. Then uh, one of the temple guards standing nearby uh, slapped Jesus across the face. Is that the way they answer the high priest, he demanded? Jesus replied, if I said anything wrong, you must prove it. 
But if I'm speaking the truth, why are you beating me? Now, what you should know is that Annas was uh, kind of the godfather of Jerusalem. He's the power broker of Jewish leadership. You know, you, you don't always have to have an official position uh, to be a power broker. We all know that, that there are leaders who come up through the ranks, and whether they're in the organization or not, whether they're in the official leadership or not, they carry a lot of weight. And Annas was that guy. His son-in-law was actually the current high priest, but who was really calling the shots behind the scene. Uh, it was Annas. It was Annas. He's the godfather. He didn't like Jesus because Jesus exercised immense authority when he walked through the temple and he threw out the money changers. Remember that story? Jesus came in and he cleansed the temple. He threw out all these money changers. Well, that was a good business that Jesus interfered with. And Annas, no doubt, had the monopoly on business in the temple. So Jesus hit him in the pocketbook. And Annas not only disliked him because Jesus was a threat to the Jewish religious institutions, but also because he was bad for business. <laughs> now, not very spiritual, is it? Not very spiritual. And Annas, calling for a trial to examine Jesus, was as phony as you can get. He had no religious authority to do that, or no legal authority. He wasn't part of the Sanhedrin. He just pulled that off on his own. Because he'd always been the power broker in Jerusalem. And meeting at one o'clock in the morning for a trial? You see, it was probably about midnight when Jesus was arrested in the garden. And then the soldiers took Jesus to Annas' home for interrogation. So everybody knew that no trial could be held in secret or in the middle of the night. The proper place to go for court was the hall of judgment in the temple. And the rules were clear. The accused could not be compelled to testify against himself. Annas broke Sanhedrin rules by asking Jesus directly about his followers and his teaching, hoping to hear something incriminating. We'll get him to talk. You know how that is. We'll get him to talk. We'll get him to talk. And finally, he'll trip himself up. And so they badgered the prisoner. Get him to say something that we can use as evidence. And Jesus said to him, well, everything I've said is out in the open. There's no secret message. A lot of people have heard me speak. Well, you just go talk to people who've heard me speak. There's no secret message. It's all out there. Check with those who have heard me. Although you might be inclined to think that Jesus is being disrespectful to Annas, he is not. But what he's doing is calling Annas to account. It's the same thing as being in a Canadian court. Counsel for the defense might have well said, Objection, objection, your honor. The accused shall not be compelled to present evidence against himself. And because Annas was asking the question, the defense lawyer would have said, Objection, the presiding judge may not examine the accused. And just like in our day, there's protocol. There's a prosecuting attorney. There is a defense attorney. And Annas thought, 
because he is who he is, the godfather of Jerusalem, he could run wild. He could just do what he wanted to do. No attorneys present, no one to say objection. So Jesus said, objection. Jesus said, objection. If I said anything wrong, you must prove it. The trial set forth by Annas shows to us strength under pressure. Look at the strength of Jesus under pressure. And maybe we can figure out when this is appropriate for us to stand strong in the midst of pressure and tense situations. When is it right to stand up and say, objection here? Jesus could have capitulated to Annas and remained silent, but in this instance, he doesn't. He stands up for himself. And when Annas begins to question him, what he's, in effect he is saying is, this is not right. This is not right what's happening here. The law does not allow you to question me like that. Bring your witnesses. That's what the law requires. And when the soldier hauls off and hits Jesus on the face... Jesus does the same thing. Objection. You can't do that. If I have done something wrong, then you need to tell me. If not, why do you hit me? This is against the law to hit a prisoner without cause. I love it. Strength under pressure. It's not retaliation, it's not personal abuse. It is not vengeance. It is not, I'll get my innings in. It is strength under pressure to say the truth. To stand on your rights, but without becoming angry or striking back. And what a beautiful model this is. What a beautiful model this is. And it befuddled Annas. He, didn't, he just didn't know what to do with that. He shut the court down pretty quickly. He sent Jesus off to Caiaphas, and the case was closed for him. <laughs> if you're following the horrendous ordeal of Pastor Saeed, locked up in an Iranian prison for his faith and his love for Jesus, I think you see another model of strength under pressure. They have persecuted this man. They have beat him. He's, I don't know, 35, 37, 38 years old. They, they, he continues to stand strong in his faith through all of this. He does not rail back at them. He and others are doing everything possible to say, this is not right, objection. But in the pressure cooker that he's in, he is a beacon of God's grace and love. The President of the United States recently met with Pastor Saeed's wife in Boise, Idaho. And after that meeting from his Iranian prison, Pastor Saeed wrote a letter to the President to say thank you for meeting with his wife. And here it is. Dear Mr. President, I was personally encouraged that you were in my hometown of Boise, Idaho and made time to visit my wife and children. They've had a 
heavy burden to carry in my absence, and your presence helped to relieve some of that burden. Thank you for your fatherly compassion of letting Jacob know that you will try to get me home by his birthday. I know that as a father you can truly understand the pain and anguish of my children living without their father and the burden that is on my wife as a single mother. I also know how encouraged Christians around the world were to also hear of this meeting. Nothing is more valuable to the body of Christ than to see how the Lord is in control and moves ahead of countries and leadership through united prayer. Thank you again for standing up for my family and I and for thousands of Christians across the world who are persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. President Obama, you have my prayers from inside of these walls. I pray for God's guidance, wisdom, and blessing as for you as you lead this great nation. Now, you can't live very long in this world without experiencing injustice. And it may not always be at a corporate level. It may not always be at a community level. It probably, at times, will be on a very personal level. There's something to be learned here about understanding how to turn the other cheek. Jesus turned the other cheek, not literally, but figuratively. He didn't retaliate. He didn't back away. He set forth the injustice. He said it. He let it be known in a way that kept him in the driver's seat. And again, I ask the question, who's really on trial here? He was bold, and he asked the questions. And so the question I have for you this morning is this. Is there a time when that is appropriate for you? Will this be something that you need to underscore in your life? these days? Or will you come across this situation in a year's time or 10 years time when you face an injustice that wants to do you in? And how will you respond to that injustice? Come back and read the story of Jesus at his trial. So first the trial in front of Annas shows a strength under pressure. Secondly, the trial in front of Caiaphas shows us that Jesus is who he claims to be. Jesus is who he claims to be. Now, Jesus, John doesn't have many words to say about the court appearance before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. In fact, verse 28 pretty much covers it. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. So you don't have much there. We need to head over to Luke's gospel, if you will, uh, for just a moment. The passage is Luke chapter 22, verses 66 to 71. At daybreak, all the elders of the people assembled, including the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. Jesus was led before this high council, which is sometimes called the Sanhedrin, and they said, tell us, are you the Messiah? But he replied, if I tell you, you won't believe me. You won't answer. And if I ask you a question, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated in the place of power at God's right hand. Oh, he's given them some clues. They all shouted, so are you claiming to be the Son of God? And he replied, you say that I am. Yes. Why do we need other witnesses, they said. We ourselves heard him say it. 
The elders who led the nation were referred to as the Sanhedrin. They were the governing body of 70 men. Of course, under the direction of, of Rome. But Rome gave some latitude for the nation of, to govern itself within certain limits. So Rome was the umbrella, and underneath the umbrella was, were Jewish, the Jewish authorities called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin managed the day-to-day -day operation of the temple. They ruled on civil cases and criminal cases, but they did not have the power to execute anyone. That belonged to Rome. But the problem the Sanhedrin had with Jesus was they couldn't, they couldn't accuse Jesus of anything. They couldn't pin the blame for anything on him. They had nothing to blame him for. Isn't that wonderful? To be hauled before a court, if you're going to get hauled before a court, and they've got nothing on you. No evidence of wrongdoing. Imagine that for you coming before an Alberta court, and it's ridiculous. You're, you're before the court. There is no authentic charge. Everybody is fishing for something to pin it on you, but nobody's got anything. And they're making up all kinds of stuff, but nothing sticks. The Sanhedrin had the same objective as Annas, to build a credible case against Jesus to condemn him. And secondly, if to intimidate Jesus, to break down his will <clears throat> so that he would recant his messianic claims. I mean, I guess if they got him to recant, they wouldn't need to kill him. And that would be a lot less messy. So just get him to recant. He would be discredited. He would lose all of his power. And, and he would be off the scene and they would have their way. Only problem is, Jesus would not recant. He would not recant. And verse 70 says, they all shouted, So are you claiming to be the Son of God? And he replied, you say that I am. Why do we need other witnesses, they said. We ourselves heard him say it. Finally, they made one accusation that stuck. Just one. Now, this one was true. This is what they killed Jesus for, this one accusation. Finally, after they couldn't get anyone to testify against, they finally said, tell us this. Do you claim to be the Son of God? And Jesus basically said, yes, I am the Son of God. They said, okay, that's it. We're killing this guy. Now think about this, friends. Jesus never claimed to be a religious leader. Jesus never claimed to be a good teacher. Jesus never, ever claimed in the Scripture to be a prophet. He never, ever claimed to be a moral and ethical teacher. He never even claimed to be a man of God. He claimed, he said, I'm God. That's what he said. I'm God. If I were to stand up here today and say, folks, good morning. My name is Ken McDonald, and I'm one of the pastors of TCC, and I love my job to preach about Jesus Christ. Most of you would say, well, I don't have a problem accepting that. I can see that. But if I came up here today and said, my name is Ken McDonald, and by the way, I'm God. <laughs> Wouldn't that change your feeling toward me? 
I think so. If anybody ever comes up to you and claims to be God, you only have three options. There's only one of three possible options. Number one, you could say he's an idiot. Number two, you could say, well, he's a con man. He's a crook. He's a fake. He's a phony. He's a swindler. He's trying to tell me something he's not because I know what he's out for. He's out for the money. So watch him. Or the third thing is, he's telling the truth. He's telling the truth. He's telling you what he is and who he says he is. He's telling the truth, that he's God. Now, if that option is true, well, then that changes everything. Then I have to fall down and worship him. I want to. I have to obey him. If he's God, if he's God, that changes everything. Everybody in this room, all of us here, are making some decisions about Jesus. We all are. You have already believed something about Jesus. You either believe he's the Lord, who he says he is, He's either a deceiver, conning everybody, or he's delusional, or he's deity, who he claimed to be. Jesus said, I'm God. And he claimed to be the Savior of the world. And that's why he allowed himself to be put on trial. Obviously, as God, he could have prevented the whole thing. He could have circumvented it. He could have vanquished those who were leading the charge. But what was his purpose? He would, Remember, he's weaving that puzzle together. He's building that tapestry of grace and love. And his purpose was to save the world. So the trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin shows that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Otherwise, he would have recanted. He would apologize and said, they'll never do this again, that he had a bad night, that he shouldn't have said what he said. And he would have begged to be released, get me out of this. He didn't do that because he was indeed the Son of God. How are we doing out there this morning? Need a seventh inning stretch? You still okay? Want the third point? Maybe. <laughs> All right, here's the third point. The trial before Pilate shows us that truth will ultimately win. We're back in John 18. And if you have the insert in the, in the Sunday news, it's verses 28 to 40. Let me paraphrase because it's rather lengthy. The Sanhedrin, having arrived at their decision to have Jesus killed, now need the Roman authorities to put their stamp on this evil deed. Only the Romans could execute a criminal. There's obviously animosity here between the Sanhedrin and the Roman government. But nevertheless, they need one another. At least the Sanhedrin needs Pilate to do his dastardly deed, to take care of the execution. So they bring Jesus to Pilate and say, We have a guy in our community that needs to be executed. 
And Pilate says what you'd expect him to say. Well, what did he do? And the Sanhedrin says, well, we wouldn't have brought him to you unless he was a criminal. Don't ask any more questions. But what did he do? Pilate talked to Jesus in private and said, what did you do? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, well, where did you get that question from? And Pilate is terse and he says, am I a Jew? I don't know. I don't know what's going on. What have you done? Jesus says, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. You see, what Pilate was really asking was, uh, are you a threat to me? Are you a threat to the rule of Rome? Are you the king of the Jews? Do you have a plan to overthrow us? Are you a threat? Well, he was a threat, but not in the way Pilate feared. Kingdoms on earth are founded on power and military might and intellectual prowess, financial capability, on and on and on. The kingdom of God is founded on truth. And the arrival of the Messiah on a lonely night in Bethlehem years before, that was the beginning of the invasion of this planet that impacts all of us. The kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom of God is here. Now, sometime before death or before Christ returns in power, each of us have to choose the kingdom that you or I will serve. We will serve the kingdom of earth or the kingdom of God. Kingdoms founded on power or the kingdom founded on truth. And as we weave our way through the years and years that God gives to us, through our homes and our occupations and our playtimes, we are always making a decision for the kingdom that we will belong to. Pilate said, so you're a king. Jesus responded, you say I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. And all who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. <laughs> what is truth? What is truth, Pilate said. The little boy was praying with his dad and before his dad tucked him into bed. They always prayed together this prayer, and the little boy knew it by heart. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should wake before I die, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Oh, Daddy. The little boy said, I said it wrong. I said it wrong. I said, if I should wake before I die, I'm sorry. Daddy put his arm around his son and said, You know what? You really said it right. You really said it right. That's how we should pray that prayer. If I should wake before I die. If I should come alive to the kingdom of God before I die. And know that Jesus is a king. That he's the king of kings. That he is the Lord of lords. That would be the best thing that could happen if I should wake before I die. 
May I close with a little story from John Ortberg's book, Soul Keeping. And he talks about his friend Dallas Willard, who was dying of cancer. Dallas had to go through an operation called the Whipple Procedure. Some of you who are, have a medical background will know immediately about the Whipple Procedure. And the little I read on it was the brutal invasion of the body. Simply said, it's not very pleasant. In fact, it's extremely difficult. John writes that when we gathered to pray for him, Dallas said before going through it, whatever happens will be wonderful. I could just hear him saying it like that. Whatever happens will be wonderful. Watching Dallas walk this path was like watching a scout who had been doing advance work anyway begin to walk into a country where we will all one day arrive. He said, uh, I think that when I die, it may take some time before I know it. Huh? He said, I think that when I die, it may take some time before I know it. What a statement. Dallas died on May the 8th, 2013. I'm not sure if anybody's told him yet. But I know that for the lives touched by his mind and his heart, there's a void. Philosopher, theologian, servant of God. But it was the quality of his life the extent to which he lived in the reality of the kingdom that shaped so many who heard him or have read something of what he has written. Truth will ultimately win. Truth will ultimately win. And that's our lesson from Pilate, that truth will ultimately win. Thy kingdom come Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Truth will ultimately win. Each of us have been granted time. That's what we're in now. We're in time. We've been granted time here on this planet to make a choice. We will choose the kingdom of Alberta, <laughs> the kingdom of Canada, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom that we have to live in. But will we most significantly choose the kingdom of God, the kingdom of truth, the kingdom that reigns forever and ever? I think of Handel's Messiah. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdoms of this world has become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. The way to the new kingdom is through the heart, and the mind. 
It's a, it's a simple but profound declaration to say, Lord, I want my life to be about you. And I want your kingdom and your purposes to be my heart. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for putting together the pieces of the puzzle in our lives. Such unique ways. All of us gathered here together this morning. You've, for each one of us, there's a special design. And Lord, nothing is, is holding you back uh, from your well-purposed life. I'm so glad that you stood strong. under such immense pressure. You loved us so much that nothing kept you from going through those trials, through that agonizing death, because you were so intent on reaching us and showing us something better something better your love never fails so hear our silent prayers this morning across this congregation as we say again to you yes Lord, yes Lord you have my life you have my life